Welcome to Changing Academic Life. I'm Geraldine Fitzpatrick, and this is a podcast series where academics and others share their stories, provide ideas, and provoke discussions about what we can do individually and collectively to change academic life for the better. Welcome to part one of my conversation with Dr. Katta Spiel, who's an assistant professor from the Technical University of Vienna, or TUV, as is our English name. As full disclosure, Katta is a valued colleague of mine at TUV, and I was also their co-supervisor back in the day when they did their PhD. So it is a little bit challenging interviewing someone so close, but I felt like Katta just has so much to share on so many different topics that it would be worth giving it a go. So in part one here, Kata shares their experiences of a range of topics, covering things like career uncertainty, having proposals rejected, navigating coming out as queer and having a formal gender change, and also dealing with some chronic health issues. And in the middle of all this, They've also been really successful by some external measures, including having just been recently awarded a very prestigious European Research Council grant. In part two, we'll go on then to further discuss their experiences and and this time focusing more on neurodivergence and, and embracing that. So getting started here on part one. You may need some context to make sense of the beginning of our conversation. So I I had wanted to interview Kata quite a while ago, but they had said previously that they didn't really feel safe to share these various aspects of their identities while they were still in the job market. And so Kata starts here bouncing off my introduction about us finally getting to sit down to chat and starts off reflecting on the uncertainties of not having a permanent position and why they felt unsafe to chat. Great that we could finally sit down and have this chat, Kata. Thank you for doing it with me. Do you just want to introduce yourself? So, yeah, it meant it has been a while also because I didn't feel too, too safe about like the bunch of identities that I can like, you know, be vaguely or could for a long time be vaguely um, like there was plausible deniability about a bunch of them. And I, um, as long as I felt like I was kind of dependent on the job market and on, on kind of other things, I didn't feel too, too comfortable necessarily talking about these mm-hmm. things. And then, you know, just life and things. Cause like at some point I wrote all these papers about these things and then I, it was public knowledge if people looked close enough. And I mean- And we will talk about those identities oh, yeah, in, yeah. in a tick for people who are wondering what they might be. But I guess like one of the biggest things, honestly, why I would do that now is because, and it sounds so weird, but now I'm happy to talk about academia or whatever um, because I don't feel like this is the only thing I can do anymore. And like, I don't feel I'm dependent on my peers' judgment or what have you. Mm -hmm. Or like even within the faculty, there is a freedom. (laughs) Like, you know, being like, what are you gonna do? Not give me tenure? Okay, I can do other things. Like, I don't need this. I can go to other places if I wanted to or like, you know, just having that kind of like standing is, is incredibly liberating. So what particularly led to that 
sense of standing or having other possibilities? So, I mean, they always keep on saying, like, you should have a plan B that is at least as attractive as plan A, that is kind of like, but it's like so true. <laughs> like, the thing is, like, I, I kind of felt for a long time that I, um, that I couldn't do anything else other than academia. And like, you know, because like, I was always like, what's my other option doing like UX interfaces for banks, which, you know, is pro like, is absolutely valid as a yeah. career. And it's like yeah. something, it's just not for me. Like I yeah. didn't see myself there. Right. And it just didn't ring with me. And I, I kind of like felt like I was so removed from, from like my core studies and like went so deep into a niche that I wouldn't necessarily be able, like, that's not even true. I have learned that since then too, but like, I kind of like was so in that system that I felt like there was no, it sounds like a cult. <laughs> <laughs> the cult of academia. Yeah. But like, I was so much in that system that I kind of felt like there was no other way to do this. And then I, I think the moment that I always relate to in that regard was when I had COVID for the first time. Um, because I was really sick mm. um, and then my partner got sick and I had to like do all the childcare duty as well and so like you know um, it was just like it was only like two or three weeks but like only because I had longer health mm. scares before but like it was just two or three weeks but I couldn't really do a lot and I came back to it and I had a rejection that was based on for a funding proposal that, that started with a sentence that was basically like queer theory has nothing to do with academia. That's okay. Like we can have that discussion, but then you shouldn't evaluate my proposal. I had the feeling there was a lot of pressure from peers as to, cause I was involved in conference organization and, uh, and I had felt that pressure of like, you know, why weren't you around? And I was like, I was sick, but also there's like a different kind of culture around that internationally. I feel sometimes particularly stemming from the US, I'm gonna say that. Like, it's not even people. It's just like, you know, there's like, you see the system there is so much different compared to here when it mm. comes to kind of like taking time off or like, mm. you know, you have kind of this focus on self-care because there is no systemic care. And like, you can see that being perpetrated, even incidentally, right? And, and so I had the feeling I had let people down because um, because everybody was expecting me to work through COVID, which like didn't make any sense mm. to me because like I was mm. really sick. And then um, and then that happened and that happened and then I felt like you know I that uh, was then also briefly after that um, uh, there was the announcement that they didn't have money at the university anymore for the job that I'm sitting in now. Like they found the money again, but like. I essentially stood there and I was like, what's gonna happen? And then I saw that there was, there is like a study degree that you can do um, while you're holding a job in sign language interpretation. And sign language was kind of my COVID project mm -hmm. because I could commit to that when I didn't have to go to conferences all the time. And so um, I saw the study degree. I was like, this is way too early for me. Like I was not really good at signing. I'm still like, you know, I'm okay, but like not, I'm not great at signing, um, I wouldn't say, but, um, but I felt it was a bit early for that move, but it only happens every three years and so, and I was kind of like set up with that, like there was just so much that happened kind of, that mm -hmm. I was like, well, I'm gonna try and if not, then I can either try in three years again or like what is gonna happen other than I apply and they say no, it's like the same situation and mm -hmm. like I didn't expect to get it. Uh, and then I got in and I was like, well, I guess I'm doing that now. Got, so, got into... Into the study degree. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
And was uh, were you thinking then that the signing might be an alternative career path? Ultimately? Yes, exactly. Yeah. And even if um, if I would stay in academia, that it could could be something. Like uh, Austria is very small, and so there are like 130 sign language interpreters mm. um, in total, and none of them are either inter uh, or trans. And so there are a handful of people who are deaf and out as inter or trans. Like mm. it's not a lot of people, mm. but they don't have anyone necessarily relatable to. And so I felt like that would still be a service that I could do as a side gig, even like where where it would just be available mm. for for specific instances there where i just have kind of that community experience mm. um yeah and like now i'm doing that and uh i i see myself maybe you know reducing my hours i want and quite and do academia part-time which i find an actually quite attractive kind of like notion right like being like hey how about i do this like you know 50 percent or whatever and like do then the interpreting or, you know, if I don't get tenure, then I can just do it full time because half of interpreting is research. So it's like, mm, yeah, yeah, same thing. So, so many threads to pick up on oh, there. Sorry, yeah. And uh, we've worked together for a long time as well. So trying to also think about people who might not have the shared background that we have. Do you want to just give a little bit more about your background in terms of you know disciplinary areas where you've come from yeah so i've uh, i've done two bachelor degrees um uh, i'm a student by life uh by profession or so no um anyway uh so yeah i have two bachelor degrees one in cultural studies and one in computer science and then i have a combined master kind of with a focus on computer science and actually cryptography um, that was my jam. And then I did a PhD here at TU Wien. Um, I did the other degrees in Weimar in Germany at the Bauhaus, because mm -hmm. it sounds fancy. Mm -hmm. um, and then, uh, yeah, then I was at Leuven for a year, then I came back here um, with my own funding. And then mm -hmm. they said, like, cool funding you got there, now you can have Which a... Which was quite a prestigious Austrian fellowship. Yeah, was. it was also interesting because like I do all these things without thinking they fall through. <laughs> no, it's actually funny because like constantly I do things where I'm like, that's never gonna work out. Like it was with the study degree, but it was also with that funding. I was like, cause I knew that my legal gender would change while they would evaluate mm -hmm. it. And it was funding that was initially only for women. Mm -hmm. And then um, I was like, I wanna see what the system does when, <laughs> when that happens. Um, and like I informed them immediately when my legal gender changed to, um, in Germany it's called diverse. We can talk about that, mm -hmm. like, you know, a non-binary gender. Um, and I informed them that that is the case and that I'm inter and um, that it, I leave it up to them how they're gonna deal with that situation. They were like, noted, we're gonna discuss this. And then they had apparently like the, the head of the funding body, which was the national funding body in mm -hmm. Austria, so it was a bit funny. Yeah, so the, the, the curatorium is how they're called, I think. They have discussed your case and you will be evaluated further. <laughs> so I was like, nice, thank you. And then I even got it. And the funny thing about that is because, like, I did write a proper proposal, like it wasn't a joke proposal or anything, but I wrote one that made no compromises in terms of what I wanted to do. Like, it didn't try to pander to reviewers. 
And then that was what surprised me so much then that I got it because I was like, I was not trying to do any of the strategic mm -hmm. things. And it was mm -hmm. funny because later afterwards, I was one of the like, you know, people who have done it before at an internal seminar here at Tiawin. And so I listened to what they suggested, what you should do. And it was things like never say you want to be with like your advisor or whatever. And I came back to the same institute and you were my formal advisor back then. And so I did that wrong. And then there were a bunch of things that you could do wrong. And I basically did all of them wrong. <laughs> By, by playing the strategic game, yeah, those if you, rules. If you could, you could yeah. be more strategic about it. And I was just not, and yeah. I was so surprised at it. And even like, even after the fact that it worked out, but like, you know, it did. Yeah. It's interesting so. to think about if it would have been, oh no, you need a parallel universe. If it would have been as successful, if you weren't as authentic and, and uncompromising. Yeah. That is like then what I keep telling people sometimes, mm. like if you dare to just, um, I shouldn't swear, but like if you dare to then just like, I guess, like do the thing that you want to. But I know also that it's really difficult and even I can only get there when I'm not that afraid of like how it could work out. Yeah, I was, I was just going to say how much um, of a factor did it play that it wasn't something that you really, 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 really wanted. It seemed like you held it quite lightly. Yes. Um, I mean, that was different with the funding that I got recently, where I also didn't expect that I would get it and also wrote it fairly in a fairly uncompromising fashion. But I did be, I did, I was more strategic about it and I was a bit more nervous also because didn't only affect me and then it did suddenly and then you know it didn't again but um it's also about like you know giving people the opportunity to work in a field that they want to work mm -hmm. in and um and so i i took um i feel like there it was a bit different even like even though i i similarly kept on held on to some things i I remember that I, for example, like my early thing was uh, was titling it something around crypt stuff and all that, and I had like internal people here from your from support services be like, well, at least people will remember that mm -hmm. because like they probably have not understood crypt studies necessarily, and like you're kind of like going in with like a bang there, and maybe you want to do a softer entry and all that, and I listened to that and I did that and like it also worked out, but I'm not sure I would have necessarily if I wouldn't have felt that that was actually a thing that I would want if it mm -hmm. would follow through, even though I didn't believe that that. Mm -hmm. yeah. And not even for myself, but yeah. like... I know, because you said... Taking on that responsibility. You said that the value of that grant in particular is all the positions that yes. it gives for other people that you care about and, and enabling their careers. And we should just say that this is an ERC <laughs> grant, which is really incredibly prestigious in Europe for those who don't know. And so congratulations, Kata. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I still haven't, like people keep on like, you celebrate it, yeah? And I'm like, um, no, not sure what's to celebrate. So but is like, it, yeah. Is it that it doesn't feel real or What's... Well, I'm also like, there is still like, th things could still go wrong, right? There okay, is no grant agreement okay. that has been signed yet. And like, you know, 
Maybe I've not been ethical enough with the stuff, and the EU is now going to tell me they can't fund it because. Of Although you ethics. did get a reviewer comment that it was one of the best ethics sections. That, that was at they... the other. Ah, okay. But you would have brought the same sensitivities to this proposal yeah, yeah. as well. Um, we'll see, right? Mm. Um, there is some stuff that is highly sensitive. So, I mean, I also appreciate good guidance on that. Um, yeah, I just like mm. that. So would you give people the advice about thinking carefully about being authentic and uncompromising as as you can be in your proposals rather than, I don't know, I guess the opposite is what, filling it with all the buzzwords that you think are the trendy buzzwords. Yeah, but then there's also a question of how well can you do it if you just follow them without, yeah. you know. Yeah. But I mean, the thing is, it just changes or it changed for me or where this is a different situation when it's funding for yourself like mm. the first one yeah um or if it's funding for like you know other people as yeah. well and they that was kind of the shift that for me made a huge difference in terms mm. of like how much i cared and how much i felt like you know to tone down some of the aspects but i mean it's still talking about sex and disability like yeah. i don't i didn't take myself out of it i do want to research stuff where you know, there are um, a lot of taboos and there are a lot of kind of like, you know, hush-hush, uh, like not looking at it so closely because we feel like, you know, it's sensitive and all that. I do want to go there still. Mm, like that's yeah. not that's not where I compromise, but like how I talk about it mm. has been more compromising. Right. <laughs> because, yeah. But it still sounds like a negotiated playing the risks. Yes. But also I have no filter, right? Like, there's just, like, so much I can do in that regard. Um, there's, like, I can say this slightly different so you can hear that and it still makes sense. And, like, both are of our heads, so to speak, with that imaginary other. But, um, but there is also a thing of, like, I want you to feel uncomfortable a little bit. <laughs> or, like, yeah. you know, where yeah. just don't take that agenda. Yeah. But do it in a way that brings the reviewers along with you in terms yeah. of the arguments for the validity of the science and the and the contributions and the importance of it. I mean, I'm not sure whether I do that necessarily very well. I looked at those reviews and it was funny because like you do you with the EU you don't get them before you have the oral presentation, and it was so interesting because I saw them and then I realized that I was actually like just by chance because I couldn't have known. But by chance, I had my 10 minute kind of like, you know, presentation and I covered 90% of the critique and comments. Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, well anticipated. That was pretty smart, I guess, but like mm. not but, to be and planned were for. Were you able to do that because of previous discussions you'd had with support people or peers who gave feedback on drafts who maybe sensitized yeah. you to what some of the questions might have been? Uh, yeah, uh, I mean, I did that internally like three or four times because mm. there was also another interviewer involved um, for a different funding body that decided not to give me money. Yes. Uh, <laughs> well, there, like, I sound a bit miffed, and I am, but that's again not necessarily for me. But, um, but also, I mean, I keep on saying we all think that our topics are the most important because, like, you need some kind of passion to go mm. after them. Mm. But just in the in the state of things, um, I found there was kind of a focus put on specific kind of disciplines, 
um, to the loss of anything that would qualify as like, you know, humanities or like deep kind of like engagements with like culture as it is. Um, or, or sociological topics or just larger groups of mm -hmm. people and how they operate within mm -hmm. society. And so, I mean, there was one project that, that got awarded that was coming close to that, but like other than that, it was very much um, kind of like the natural sciences for a funding scheme that is across the board. And mm -hmm. I think, and that's not just about me, I think it's like a loss to, um, to uh, towards the community as such, like the academic community as such, but also towards upcoming academics and like people who might be interested in different ways of knowing and bringing their stuff in, that there is like such a such a solid focus on on very specific kind of projects. Mm. So that was the shame because they also get like a lot of publicity, and these topics are then set as important research topics and like relevant things we wanted to like you know research in Austria, and I felt a bit like. Of course, also with my stuff with around access and disability and like minority bodies and all that, but also that there was just like none of these kind of like, you know, questions or or considerations um, that just surprised me a little mm -hmm. bit, I guess, that yeah. there was like little of that, yeah. very little at least, um, to be fair. And especially when so many of the challenges that we're dealing at a societal level require such diverse disciplinary perspectives to address in more holistic, effective ways. Maybe this will be a point of reflection for funding bodies later on, who knows. But you named your research agenda uh, mm. just then really is about accessibility and... Well, not um, accessibility, access. Access and <laughs> disability and minority bodies. And those themes also seem to be quite biographical for you as well. Well, to some extent, not to all of them. I also work mm. with deaf people nowadays because mm. there aren't just enough other people who um, like were... I don't want to be arrogant. I don't know of, of anyone else who has the level of signing that I have in my field mm. in Austria. Like in my field, yes, there are deaf people. Like mm -hmm. there is uh, Raja Kushnaga mm -hmm. and like uh, Christian Fugler at Galaudet, and then there are people at RIT who, who like do amazing work, like Abraham Glasser and like, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. uh, yeah. like there are deaf people who have better levels of signing and how to do amazing research. Um, in Austria, that uh, is not the case. It's also there are differences in the education system and all that and the chances are afforded but because of that um, I do work with deaf people even though I'm hearing mm. and, and what, that's not autobiographical like yeah. the autobiographical stuff because like you wanted to go there no? yeah we, we can go there just first can you just clarify how you see access and accessibility as being different well I actually have these interesting also kind of like discussions because um, and, and it's a work that I'm currently still trying to get to the definitory like differences. Mm -hmm. But essentially what I'm interested in and why I keep on focusing on access, and I don't see access as a one-time thing, I see it as a process and as something that you stay involved in, but also that is give, like not necessarily given to you. That is uh, like, to me, access is more of, um, 
is more of something that is like attuned to how your body acts in the world and how you are acting within your environment or other people. Whereas accessibility is kind of like um, an afterthought a little bit or like, you know, a, a kind of like the special thought. Mm -hmm. So it's a bit like, um, it's a bit like providing, um, and it's just gonna be my example now because we've talked about that just now, but um, providing education in sign language is something very different. Like when the, when the teachers like illustrate things in sign language, and when it goes through interpreters, where you always have an indirect kind of like processing and like uh, translation from even a logic that is geared towards a hearing audience mm. versus a logic that is more visual, like you have these kind of things that, that just like add on to like um, a, a way of interacting with the world. So accessibility to me is kind of like we have that norm of how we do things and then yeah. here's a way in for yeah. you. Yeah. And, it's and access thing, is to me that you thing. have the way in there, yeah. but like directly. Is access more person-centered and accessibility more thing-centered? I'm not sure. I do wonder, like I, like, as I said, like I'm currently very much like, this is like ongoing thinky mm -hmm. work. Mm -hmm. But um, thinky work, that sounds very <laughs> academic. Um, but like, uh, like that's where I try to like get to the definitory like <laughs> grounding and all that. But yeah, um, so that's what I've been thinking on. Like I'm not sure it's necessarily person centered. I I feel like even that access is is more like intent and like interaction centered. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, mm -hmm. whereas accessibility is like can be thing or person centered. Really. Yeah. So you, you've mentioned about um, getting a legal gender change during the process yeah. of applying for a grant and that. Do you want to talk about that process, that whole experience of being gender diverse and inter? Well, I mean, to an extent, that's just how I live my life, mm. right? Like, so it's a bit normal for me and I... I keep on saying that I actually don't have a lot of interest in talking about it, but I have to continuously um, because of like all these systems requiring me to um, to disclose a gender that I don't have. Um, but uh, more to the point, um, it was very affirmative to kind of like how like that moment when I had that passport, just um, like that, because it was it was validating my experiences in like some weird way. Mm. But um, so I've, uh, um, I've been uh, undergoing hormone therapy since I was like nine or 10 um, without necessarily knowing that that was the case or my parents knowing that that was the case. Um, and it followed back then medical standards as well um, to do it that way and also to keep people in the dark. So it's like, I'm not making anyone like, and not actually, it was a systems failure, yeah. right? Yeah. And it also took me a while to understand what was happening there either. And then end of my 20s or so, like I always felt kind of like not belonging to any of that. And then mm -hmm. I saw an intergroup in Germany once and I was like, huh, I kind of like feel like them, but I have like absolutely no understanding of why that is. Mm -hmm. Because like, I didn't have surgeries. Well, I actually did, but later. And I wasn't even aware that that also was related, but yeah. And um, 
And anyway, uh, there was a bunch of stuff where I had to kind of like piecemeal it together that that is who I am um, and, and what my actual like biological, so to speak, like what my body does mm-hmm. with my gender and like so or with my sex, even like if you want to make that differentiation, which I feel a bit uncomfortable about, but like my body was just like, you know, not going clearly one way or another, especially like on a hormonal level. And then I stopped taking those hormones and I felt so much better. Um, Like there was like some, I had several reasons of why I was chronically depressed for the longest time of my life, Mm -hmm. but like one of those like lifted a little bit. And then, And then I stopped doing that and um, that also meant that, you know, uh, at some point I stopped then shaving because like I had a beard actually the entire time, like less so with the hormones, but Mm. still it was there. Um, And then I stopped shaving. That was out of spite because because one psychiatrist said like they don't believe in creating a reality that just follows my imagination. And I was like, I'm gonna show you what my reality is. Yeah, Cause yeah. like, you know, I don't think you understand. Um, and yeah, it also has been filling in over the years, which is kind of neat cause I like it. And, um, and then uh, two years ago, not quite, I had top surgery. And that was also very interesting in that regard. Cause I, um, like I had top surgery and now I have a flatter chest, which is great. But also like they came back and were like, well, you kind of had artificial boobs. Like there wasn't a lot of kind of like, you know, classical, um, like I didn't have a lot of milk ducts, I think mm-hmm. is the English word mm-hmm. and all that. Like it was more of a classically male chest to begin with. And I was like, huh, so you mean like if I wouldn't have taken all those hormones, I wouldn't have had. So this was a corrective measure of actually just like creating a corrective measure of a supposedly corrective where measure. somebody else like, you know, try to, you know, mm. adapt reality towards, mm. you know, what mm. wasn't the case. Mm. Um, but like, yeah, anyway, so that was uh, that was kind of like the journey until mm-hmm. now. So you came out as queer sort of during your PhD process. Yeah. Um, I mean, I was trying to be plausible in my ability, like Mm. that is kind of like a thing that I tried for a lot of things, but there as well, because I didn't know what the community was like, right? And like, I, in 2016 was my first conference and that was very much like where it was recognizable to peers, but not necessarily to non-queer people, Mm -hmm. right? Like that was very noticeable for me. And that was kind of like where I wanted to be recognizable to peers, but not necessarily, you know, flying under the radar Mm -hmm. for others. Mm -hmm. Because? Because I didn't know how safe it was or whether it was safe. And I can also say now it is um, safer and non-safer, like not as safe as I wished it would be or thought it would be. Mm -hmm. So both, so. Mm -hmm don't think like and it's a strategy that a lot of people might employ like just like you know testing the waters a bit i mean that was new for me too mm-hmm. and then 2017 i did the same thing and then i met others who were also like doing the same thing who have since come out um and then um and in 2018 there was a keynote at um a conference and it wasn't even at the keynote which is so funny because i haven't actually seen it i just have seen the fallout but the fallout from that was that suddenly everybody seemed to clock me like that plausible deniability went away and i had to suddenly talk about gender all the time 
and had to talk about myself or being queer or like you know non-binary and all that and like because people were so angry and like um they also tried to find people they could talk about this and were, were more alert towards like queer signage and i suddenly felt myself having to explain but also to having kind of like even though i wasn't like fully in the closet or anything but like having to more explicitly come out towards that um and in the same year i also like you know then wrote the um wrote a guidance for how to talk about gender because i was angry about another paper but that's actually unrelated mm -hmm. um with those authors by the way which was really cool <laughs> just as a process but we can talk about this later uh, anyway and and like i had to um i had then felt like I wasn't even mad about the keynote as such, and I was definitely not mad at the general chairs who were probably just like, you know, doing their best and trying to figure out how to do a great conference. Mm. Um, and, you know, we all kind of like, I mean, so just, just for, I certainly just, haven't always done the right thing, right? Like, that's not the point, but like, um, I felt also that to me, my conference experience was definitely impacted in that I came to talk about, I think, fitness trackers and like, you know, other work that I found cool that I wanted to talk mm -hmm. about. And then I suddenly was pushed into like only talking about gender in, in ways that I couldn't fully understand mm. where I could go and all that. Because at least I don't know of anyone else i'm just thinking maybe one person but like um i don't know that many people who are out as inter in general and then i don't know many in academia who are out as inter mm. and so that makes it really hard and just for context for people um the the keynote touched upon issues or talked about a, a dating app and, and uh, so there was sort of issues in the in the application domain and more particularly the the way the binary notions of gender that were discussed and the ways in which those genders were talked about which triggered a lot of the thing but I think there was also some data like how you interpret data and then generalize yeah. over that and yeah. like that just doesn't cover people's yeah. experiences which is yeah. just bad data science right so you also talked about some chronic health issues you, yes. you touched upon that you've so you, you've been dealing with this with coming to feel more comfortable in your own identity and finding your community mm. I guess in a way from what you've said and then on the other side feeling safe enough to be authentic with that as well sort of more uncompromising with that and Similarly, you've been dealing with some chronic health issues. Yeah, so if I would get a, ever get um, to a state where I would have, like this is very hypothetical, a full mm. professorship in Germany, I would not get the Verbeamtung, the thing of like, where you, um, where you basically are, like, I don't know uh, how to describe that, but basically it's a better status of employment that every other full prof has because I would be too ill, considered really? too ill. Uh, I feel discriminatory, says, but like she know. says, having just got an ERC, well, they, says they, oh dear, they say, no, it's fine. <laughs> they, it like happens, right? Um, I'm not even, yeah. Um, it's more like working on it. It is, it is, Captain. So, is there anything about navigating that process and the, the around the chronic health issues? Well, yeah, I mean, 
I I do like to have more control and insight over my body than maybe others. Like my sister always makes fun of me that I have to measure my sugar levels mm -hmm. at like every 20 minutes because otherwise I wouldn't live. Um, which is not necessarily the case, but I do it quite often because I have a sensor and like an innate sense of like curiosity about data. But, um, but uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I've just had a bunch of things happening like um my digestive system is is um is either in hyper or in hypo drive i guess and um um yeah just had lots of surgery when i was um in when it, during my studies like i basically spent a year in hospital um because like i had some um issues that also required surgeries and then I got painkillers that I then ended up reacting allergic to even though that is like extremely unlikely to happen and it was caught really late and then I already had a sepsis as well and so my immune system was down uh, additionally to that like I didn't have any white blood cells and that was all very dramatic <laughs> and it was all very dramatic yeah and um, that, that is really serious oh yeah yeah um no, no, I don't want to, um, but like, you know, mm. it's also been mm. 15 years, mm. 14 years. Yeah. Um, and um, so the distance helps. Mm. But like, yeah, so I had, uh, I had these health issues back then and I, and then the, that doesn't mean that the digestive system was still like, you know, um, acting up and that took a few years to kind of like come to a stage where I'm at now-ish, where it's a, uh, knock on wood like but I didn't have any surgery related to that in the last five years and I was like whoa what is <laughs> happening um, and before that I had up to 10 15 surgeries a year like one year was really intense um, and yeah but like that is also interesting because I don't have a fixed diagnosis mm -hmm. on any of that even mm -hmm. though like there are a lot of a lot of interventions yeah. and a lot of physical issues and and the diabetes as well oh yeah but the just diabetes a, is new just a, so to speak. yeah but i had to like that is like as a fat person i'm gonna tell you the medical system is like no and mm. um, now i sound like conspiracy person but like that's not what i mean it's just so interesting because the diabetes is such a classical thing where i would say like you know um it's often that you know it said that you know weight you know i said a lot there um, but that it said that weight is a risk factor for diabetes, and that's not actually necessarily clear because the excess insulin with diabetes too that you produce can, and I have type two, um, as far as we know, and uh, um, but the excess insulin that you produce is actually an anabolica, so um, or falls in the group of anabolica. And then uh, that means you actually have weight gain, right? Mm. So it can be also an effect. And yeah. usually it's like a self, yeah. like yeah. Um, both is mm. um, like, and then, um, but that is the case, right? And I gain weight and like I kept on saying to doctors, isn't the sugar level a little bit high? And they were like, well, a little bit, but you're fat. And they were like kind of ignoring it for so long that I had to go to the ER at one point. And that shouldn't happen with type two because I was almost in a diabetic coma because <laughs> I had so much sugar in my, um, in my bloodstream. Um, and again, that shouldn't be happening with type 2 at all. Um, uh, and yeah, 
So I was ignored, even though I was kind of like already hinting towards that. And even with that kind of like, so I sometimes feel like the lack of diagnosis when, when there is clearly like a lot of interventions is also because people keep on putting it towards the shape of my body, which is not necessarily um, helpful. Mm. Yeah. But, you know, that's that. It's really hard to get good care when you're fat. Yeah. I've also commented even on uh, a lot of the interaction technologies that we are designing and dealing with and how they don't allow access for diverse bodies. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you could, um, I mean, the most, this has changed actually since then, but like most fitness trackers for a long time did only allow for binary genders. Mm -hmm. Um, or, um, or like how, um, a lot of the, like a lot of those, um, and in this case, it's not even, oh, well, it depends. Sorry. I'm thinking faster than I speak again <laughs> and that causes breaks, but so in a lot of cases, weight loss is seen as the ultimate goal, which can be quite damaging, um, especially when people um, have made experiences with eating disorders and are then, you know, prone to kind of like mm. tap into that again mm. as a source of control. I mean, that it brings up this notion of what we assume as normative approaches to all sorts of things, whether it's academia, gender mm. filling in on forms, um, goals for fitness trackers and so mm, on. Yeah. yeah. And also with all of this, you also talk about being neurodivergent. Yes. And I, I'm sitting here watching Kata <laughs> do cross-stitching yeah. as, as we're speaking. And this is where we will leave it for part one. I just want to acknowledge the additional work that Kata has to do to assert their rightful identity because of my mistake in misgendering them. And I'm grateful to Kata for their patience and gracious generosity in how they corrected me. So keep an eye open, or should I say keep an ear open, for part two, where Kata goes on to discuss how neurodivergence plays out for them. You can find the summary notes, a transcript and related links for this podcast on www.changingacademiclife.com. You can also subscribe to Changing Academic Life on iTunes, Spotify and Google Podcasts. And you can follow Change Acad Life on Twitter. And I'm really hoping that we can widen the conversation about how we can do academia differently. And you can contribute to this by rating the podcast and also giving feedback and if something connected with you, please consider sharing this podcast with your colleagues. Together, we can make change happen.